We'll hear argument first this morning in number 99-1295, David A. Gitlitz versus the Commissioner of Internal Revenue. Uh, Mr. Hallett. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. As a result of the position taken by the Commissioner of Internal Revenue on the brief before this Court, uh, the issue the Court needs to decide is, is a limited one. And that issue is whether the amount of debt discharge or cancellation of debt of an insolvent debtor, which is excluded from income under Section 108, is income, such that it amounts to an item of income which increases the shareholder's stock basis under Sections 1366 and 1367 of the Internal Revenue Code. The Commissioner rests his entire case in his brief on the argument that under Section 108, no income is realized by the insolvent debtor. Your Honors, uh, that position is squarely contrary to the statute. And if I may, rather than paraphrasing initially, read the statute, I think it's really critical to this issue and, and resolves this issue. And that statute is uh, uh, Section 108A1 in the appendix to the petition at page 34. And it states as follows. Gross income does not include any amount which, but for this subsection, would be includable in gross, gross income by reason of the discharge of indebtedness of the taxpayer if the d- discharge occurs when the taxpayer is insolvent. To paraphrase it, Your Honors, what that subsection A says in, in hopefully plain English is that an item is only excluded under Section 108 if it otherwise would have been included in gross income under Section 61. Well, I think your argument under the statute is, is, is a strong one. Uh, but is there any reason um, in, in, in tax theory or, or practical equity why, why Congress would, would want to allow this result in this particular case? I mean, I, I understand that the statute may, uh, may, may compel this, but is there some underlying rationale that supports your position? Your Honor, it may well be the consistent with the somewhat restructuring of the Internal Revenue Code in 1954, where Congress said very broadly in Section 61 that gross income includes all income from whatever source derived, and listed specific uh, items, some 15 of those, and one of them is, is income from subsection 12. In, subsection 12, and, and then consistent with that over in Sections 101 through 138, those items that are included in income are specifically excluded uh, uh, from gross income. So what I'm asking you, is why, why would Congress allow you to use income that you don't pay tax on uh, let's see, to increase the basis and then which would allow you to deduct additional unrelated losses? Well, first of all, because uh, the statute clearly says that I, I know that's position number one. That's what the said. I'm asking, is there a reason for this? There's a reason for it is because in the final analysis, uh, the uh, basis reflects uh, the shareholder's equity in the corporation, roughly speaking. And the shareholder gets equity in the corporation by contributing capital, but he also gets a, a equity in the corporation when income is realized, taxable or non-taxable. And the Congress recognized uh, that if losses have accumulated uh, such that they're not deductible because they exceed the basis, well, when income is realized, non-taxable income such as municipal bond interest, that income 
goes down to increase the basis to reflect the fact that there now is an increased equity investment. But, Mr. Hallett, um, it seems that the subchapter S shareholder is the only solvent entity who could take advantage of this. I mean, the peculiar thing about this provision and is that every other taxpayer, say a subchapter C corporation, a partner in a partnership, the insolvent would have to be that entity, that taxpaying entity. But here you have the peculiarity that the subchapter S corporation, which is not itself a taxpayer, is the insolvent, while the shareholders are highly solvent. And is there any reason why Congress would want to give those solvent taxpayers this advantageous treatment? Well, I think uh, what they, they clearly did that in 1984 when the Congress said that in the case of an S corporation, uh, the amount is excluded if there's insolvency at the corporation level. They certainly recognized that by doing that, the benefit of the exclusion would come down to the shareholder who could well be solvent. And I think uh, to the extent the legislative history reflects uh, why they did that, uh, it made it simpler to look to the insolvency of the corporation rather than up to 75 shareholders. Uh, they may well have recognized that in many situations, sure, certainly not all, if the S corporation is in trouble, uh, the shareholders in trouble as well. But, but it wasn't that way up until from in 1982. It was, well, let me put it this way: Do you recognize that if the 1982 law was still in place, the government should win? Well, it would be, it would depend on whether or not uh, my uh, uh, clients, the shareholders, were insolvent. If they were insolvent, then uh, they would be entitled to the result. Of yes, the but I'm, I'm th this case with. Very solvent shareholders, insolvent subchapter S corporation. This particular case, if the law would have remained as it was in 1982, then if the shareholder were solvent, uh, he would uh, uh, would not be able to exclude the amount from gross income. So it's, it was the change in 84. It was a change in 1984. And so we would look to a reason for that change if we're trying to understand, as Justice Kennedy asked, whether there might be something other than the words of the statute going for the position you're taking. That is true. You would look to the change, but I think you would also look to the, the critical statutes that existed prior to the change in 1984 and the statutes which provide for the basis increase, and those are sections 1366 and 1367. Now, when Congress made the change in 1984, they did not change those provisions. Mr. They Hallett, is it, is it invariably the case that this comes as a windfall to the solvent shareholder? Would the government never recapture uh, the benefit that the shareholder gets? Well, uh, I, it's not the case that it's a windfall. It's certainly not the case that it's a windfall. Uh, and Except my characterization of it as, as a windfall. Okay. Would, would any events in the future enable that 
uh, uh, benefit to the shareholder to be recaptured by the government? Well, certainly if you view a, a benefit excluding the uh, debt discharge amount from gross income, then if the attribute reduction provisions come into play, there would you could view that as a recapture of the benefit in the future. Well, well, suppose the corporation uh, s- suddenly uh, becomes solvent. Its business picks up or engages in some new sort of business. I assume that at that point, um, the, the distortion would even out for years, say, one, two, three, and five, because the net operating losses, which might otherwise have been deducted uh, against the new income, are now diminished by reason of the uh, discharge of indebtedness income. That's correct. The so there, so there, to answer Justice Scalia's question, there, there might be, I think, there might be some instances in which uh, this distortion, if we can call it that, or windfall, does even itself out. That's correct, in as much as, uh, as Your Honor stated, that the uh, the uh, increase in basis by the amount of discharge debt occurs at the time of the insolvency and, and, and permits the taking of the losses, and by taking of the losses, the losses, of course, go away. So, so, so it isn't always a windfall or a distortion? accepting those characterizations. It's not always a windfall. But it's, it's like, and I guess this was in Justice Kennedy's question, it, the, uh, the, the, the events that, uh, that, that deny it the windfall character will be in subsequent tax years. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. May I go back to the very, your very initial point about uh, Section 108? If Section 108 had read items of income shall not include instead of gross income does not, does not include, then the government would be right. Is that correct? Well, I, I don't think so because it, it, uh, it would still uh, presuppose that the item is, is, is income. In other no, words, I'm saying if, if it specifically said income from discharge of the debt shall not be treated as an item of income. Yes. And your whole case was Yes. If, my, if, if Congress would have said specifically that uh, COD so the, is so not the difference between ex- excluding from gross income and specifically stating that it's not an item of income that the case turns on. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it's a very important distinction that was drawn when the uh, uh, Section 108 was enacted in 1980. I'd also point out, Your Honor, that if, if the Commissioner were correct that COD is not income, then Section 108 would never apply to an insolvent debtor. And if we look at Section 108B, it only comes into play if an amount is excluded under Section 108A. Now, if, if it's not income and it's therefore doesn't come within 108A because it otherwise wouldn't be income, then the uh, attribute reduction process, which the commissioner places so much weight upon, would never occur. Well, what's supposed to happen if you, what some disaster must occur in the tax code since the government is, you did at one point push this argument, but it stopped. I want to know what disaster occurs if you just take 108D7A, which it says these things will apply at the corporate level. It says it applies at the corporate level. Those three sub, four subsections, A, B, C, and G. And C and G are just special cases. And A and B is the main case. So they apply at the corporate level. What does that mean? It means it doesn't flow through. Very simple. Nothing flows through. 
The attributes don't flow through. Nothing flows through. Right. Now, once you say that, that cures what seems an anomaly uh, from a point of view of policy. So why, why, why don't we interpret it that way? Because the statute doesn't say that. Well, well, let's see what it says. It says, so, uh, in the case of an S corporation, subsections A, B, C, and G shall be applied at the corporate level. Now, why can I not take those words to mean they shall be applied at the corporate level and only the corporate level, i.e., they do not flow through? Because we have to look at what is applied at the corporate level. For example, subsection A, the exclusion from gross income is applied at the corporate level. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, that's logically because the corporation realizes the income and it excludes it. Right. Uh, subsection B, and this is the critical part of the statute, an essential part of the statute as amended in 1984, is that the insolvency is determined at the corporate level. But those two provisions do not say anything about the basis pass-through. I know and they say nothing. They say nothing. So what I'm doing is suggesting that because they say nothing, one way or the other, one can interpret those words, shall be applied at the corporate level, to mean everything to do with 108 applies at the corporate level in the case of a subchapter S corporation and does not flow through. So what I'm asking you is why can I not do that? Because the statute doesn't say everything occurs at the corporate level. It says the gross income is Is there? I've got that point. Your point is the language. Yes. Is there anything other than the language? The plain language of the statute. Nothing else. And, and the failure uh, to say anything uh, in, in either 108 or sections 1366 and 67 about the, the general rule of basis, uh, uh, pass through to basis, not occurring. There's is, is nothing it, to suggest that, not a hint. Is, is it an answer to Justice Breyer, and I may be wrong about this, uh, that if that interpretation prevailed, there would be some, some instances in which, the in which the shareholder was really entitled to a double tax. In other words, if, the, uh, if, if there were basis left and the basis were not decreased as a result uh, of, 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 of this interpretation, then the, then the shareholder, in effect, would be paying a double tax in some instances. Or am I wrong about that? Well, I'm not sure it would it result in a, in a double tax. Uh, I, I think it, uh, it clearly would read into the code uh, language that's simply not there. Well, the, the shareholder would be taxed, in effect, uh, for discharge of indebtedness income, even though the corporation was insolvent. That's true. Because the basis would not be reduced. That's true. That's true. Mr. Hallett, may, may I go back to an, an earlier colloquy, and that is, as I understand it, in this case, the tax attributes, at least on your theory, they wouldn't — that would be an academic question because the losses here were entirely wiped out against the increased basis. Isn't that right? So there were no losses left. True. Once we go through the process of uh, determining how much the, the uh, uh, losses exceeded uh, uh, basis for the taxable year, as the statute tells us to do, if the, the losses are completely absorbed by the uh, uh, COD, if, if they are completely absorbed because of the increase in basis, then assuming there's no other attributes, assuming there's no basis in assets, uh, that can be reduced. That would that would that would be true. I take that to be the case in, here that the, that 
that the losses were totally absorbed? No, actually, and I have to point out this is, this is not in the, uh, the record, Your Honor. The, the losses were totally absorbed, but there was some $800,000 basis in assets and properly applied, even though the losses were absorbed, the COD income is still there, and the COD income would be applied in the next taxable year to reduce the basis in the assets. But that's not, we don't have the next tax return before us, so we don't know. No, no, that's true. That's, that's correct. That's correct. And I would just point out, it's a very important concept, though, of Section 108, that I think it's, uh, you, you read the legislative history, and, and it does admittedly talk about a purpose is to, uh, to pick up the income in the future through the attribute reduction. But Congress elect, allowed a very, very important uh, exception to that, and that's the full ability to use net operating loss carryovers or basis in the case of property sold uh, in the year of discharge. Very, very important, such that certainly many taxpayers are going to have excluded COD income but they're not going to have any attributes to be reduced. I don't believe the situation we have here is in any way an anomaly. We have absolute proof of that uh, in, in, in one of the cases, the Pew case. There were no attributes at all. There were no suspended losses. There was no basis in assets to reduce. And the Court of Appeals, of course, held that, that, the, uh, that the COD passed through. So we know that situation, we know that situation exists. Why do you say it's no anomaly? I would think with an ordinary corporation, the chance of an insolvent corporation ending up with a lot of positive income in the year of insolvency is pretty low. With an individual, the chance of an individual ending up with a lot of positive income in the year of insolvency is pretty low. In the case of an S-corporation, the chance that a shareholder of the insolvent S corporation would have a lot of positive income in that year is pretty high. And therefore, if we accept your, corporation, your, your intention for an S corporation, your interpretation, we reach as a practical matter quite a different result in terms of tax windfalls than you do in the other two instances. Well, I, I think, though, in the other two instances, uh, let's take a corporation that's in trouble and has net operating uh, losses, it, it, it could well be the situation that it, uh, it doesn't uh, have any uh, basis in its assets in excess of the liabilities. Uh, it, it, it excludes the amount from income, and it, and it doesn't have any attributes to reduce. That's what I'm saying. It's not an anomaly uh, to have a situation such as we have in this case, that whether it's a corporation, a regular corporation, or a partnership, that we don't uh, end up with any attributes to reduce, particularly because they can be used in the taxable year of the discharge. May I ask you a question about that nobody seems to discuss in the briefs, but uh, about 108.2e, uh, 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 which says, it seems to say in so many words, PE1, it says basis reduction of that... Um, why isn't that relevant, that there's a direct reduction of the basis under E? You know what I'm talking It's on page 36 of the appendix. See, the, the reduction, subsection B says reduction of tax attributes, and it lists the things that are reduced. Yes. And the last thing listed is the basis of the property of the taxpayer. Why yes. isn't that? Why, why well, that, that could come into play. And if, For example, if the, the taxpayer here had... $800,000 of uh, 
basis in property, not the taxpayer, but if the S-Corporation had the $800,000 basis in property, then that would be reduced. That would be reduced. It would be reduced, though, specifically, Section 1017 says it would be reduced after the, the, the taxable year of the discharge, as of the beginning of that year. I would just call the Court's attention as well uh, to one other section that I think solidifies that, that uh, income is realized as a result of debt discharge, and that's Section 108E1 on page 43. And it specifically says there is no other insolvency exception to the general rule that COD is income to be included in gross income. And that, ge- that general rule is, is provided in Section 61A12. And, and finally, on this matter, the, the Commissioner goes back to 1923 and cites uh, court cases, particularly in the Depression era, and a, a Treasury regulation that was promulgated before the substantial 1980 revisions of, uh, of Section 108. Uh, and I would point out that, that those court cases are, are flawed reasoning. The notion is that they, they are what, Mr. They, they, they represent flawed reasoning. The, the rationale in those cases that if a debtor realizes debt discharge, uh, uh, that there is no income if he's insolvent. Now, of course, the court <laughs> held in 1931 in Kirby Lumber that as a general proposition, there is uh, income. And these cases in the Depression era picked up on some language of, in, in Kirby Lumber about the forgiveness of the debt frees up assets. And they said, well, if, if you're insolvent, it doesn't add to assets. And so there is, uh, there is no realization of income. That was the rationale of those cases. And I submit that that just defies economic reality, where a, where a tax a debtor has $2 million in debtor a million dollars in debt or a hundred thousand dollars in debt, and that is discharged. And if he's a few hundred dollars or a few hundred thousand dollars still insolvent after the discharge, that's a real economic benefit. He can take the amount that otherwise would be paid uh, for principal and, and interest on that debt and apply it to expenses to keep going. When you recognize that the insolvency is determined based on the fair market value of the assets, you could well have a situation where the real estate operating assets, the value doesn't exceed the, the debts. But when a million dollars of debt is discharged, that money is indeed freed up. It does in, indeed free up the liquid assets to either pay down other debts or refinance or, or, or pay uh, expenses. If that rationale applied, if that rationale applied, that would mean where a debtor is insolvent and sells an asset for a million-dollar gain, that, but is still insolvent, and say he takes the million dollars and uses it to pay off debt, if that uh, rationale applied, there would be no income in that situation. Because after the transaction, even though he's had gain, he's still insolvent. That's not the tax law. And I submit that that transaction cannot be meaningfully distinguished when the situ- from the situation where the debt is is directly discharged. Uh, Let me turn uh, uh, briefly to the specific language of Sections 1366 and 1367. And I think there's a question of where do you start here. Uh, Do you start with Section 108 or do you start with Sections 1366 and 67? I don't think it makes a difference. 
because if you start with Section 108, you go to 108D7B, and that sends you over to Sections 1366 and, and Sections 1367. Sends you over to determine the amount of the losses that are disallowed for the taxable year of the discharge before you can determine that there is an attribute. Uh, and those, I would just point out that, that 1366 and 67 are very, very broad. This isn't a narrowly drawn statute. It says that 1366, that, that all items of income, including tax-exempt income, uh, are taken into account in determining shareholder basis. Uh, Congress described the reason for the, the basis increase uh, in some of the legislative history is, is uh, uh, ensuring that if an item is non-taxable, then if there's later a distribution, uh, the shareholder doesn't have to recognize income uh, as a result of the It preserves its non-taxability. Uh, the commissioner seizes upon this stated purpose of a shareholder basis increase and argues that, well, that means that you only can increase basis for a non-taxable item if you get cash, money in the till that you can distribute in kind. Well, the, the, the statutes don't require that there be a distribution in kind. The statute don't say that you have to lock the cash up in a, in a safe deposit box and use it in the future for a distribution. Uh, the fact is, if you have municipal bond interest that's collected and used to pay debt, you're in the same situation on the bottom line balance sheet uh, 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 situation of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the shareholder and the corporation. The, the critical event here, and this is, I'm glad the Commissioner brought up this, this notion of realization of income because uh, commentators and, and some of the courts have said that, well, you shouldn't give the, the shareholder uh, the losses because he hasn't, he hasn't had an economic loss. Well, the point is he's had an economic gain. It's the economic gain, the income, that Congress has chosen not to tax <laughs> that permits the taking of the, of, the, uh, of the losses. I would finally point out under Section, uh, section 108 uh, that, uh, excuse me, before I get to that, I would point out that what we're asking for is, con is consistent treatment here. A, a uh, uh, S corporation that gets excludable municipal bond interest is entitled to up the basis and, and take losses. And we ask for the, for the same thing. Uh, the uh, all other uh, uh, debtors who exclude COD income get to use their, uh, their attributes in the year of discharge, and we ask for the same thing. And this 108D7B has really been a matter of confusion. It hasn't been read closely. It requires that before you eliminate any losses, you have to go over to Sections 1366 and 67 and determine if there is an excess of losses remaining after the COD income is taken into account. I will reserve the remainder of my time for a rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Hallett. Uh, Mr. Jones, we'll hear from you. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Congress did not provide to Subchapter S shareholders the unique double tax benefit that petitioners seek. The um, 
simple question presented here is whether the discharge of debt of an insolvent is an item of income or tax-exempt income that flows through to shareholders and increases their basis under 1366. The plain text of the directly applicable statute seems to provide a pretty clear answer to that. For while section... Would you, you, I mean, Mr. Jones, would you you, uh, clarify whether you are indeed walking away from the rationale of the Tenth Circuit, which was not about the characterization of this as income, but was a timing question, as I understand it. The timing question, we don't think the timing question ever arises in this case, nor has it ever properly arisen in any of the other but, cases. But you did argue the theory that the Tenth Circuit accepted. You argued it in the Court of Appeals. Actually, I believe the Tenth Circuit developed that theory on its own. I believe that in the Tenth Circuit, as in the other cases, our argument has been twofold, that this item has never been regarded in the 80-year history of the Internal Revenue Code as income for an insolvent taxpayer. Secondly, that D7, 108D7 recognizes, is, is an emanation of that fact. The tax court rationale was that 108D7 says all of this happens at the share, at, I'm sorry, at the corporate level, and it isn't income because it's excluded, and it's not tax-exempt income, so nothing passes through. Well, we put Justice Ginsburg's question another way. If, if you do not prevail on your argument that it's not income, uh, I, I take it you don't ask us to accept a backup position that reflects the view of the circuit on timing. If, if the Court were to disagree with our basic contentions, then you would be faced with a problem. Uh, then, then as a Court, the problem would be that you have the clear history of the statute that says this is not to be treated as income, it's to be applied against tax attributes and then to be disregarded. So you'd have that clear history. You'd also have the presumptive rule that tax statutes should not be interpreted to provide a double benefit. No, we don't think it's a problem. We, we, let's assume that we, we, we simply reject that argument. I want to know okay. if you, the backup you still, argument, right. uh, if, you're, if, if, if you think that it's a matter of sound statutory construction, yes. I think this is what Justice Ginsburg would ask. I think it's for us to accept the timing rule adopted by the circuit. It, it is an appropriate resolution of the problem if you reach it. And the reason that is so is that 1336D2 requires the losses, the suspended losses from the prior year to be brought into the corporation in the year of the discharge. And then 108... 1336 or 66? 1366D2. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Jones, we've got some 20 pages in the appendix of statutory sections. When you cite a statutory section, could you refer us to the page of the appendix which it is? Page 53 of the petition appendix says any loss or deduction which is disallowed for a taxable year by reason of the prior paragraph of that same page shall be treated as incurred by the corporation in the succeeding taxable year. And this is the point that the Tenth Circuit made, that this provision brings back into the year of the discharge the the losses from the prior year, the suspended losses from the prior year. And then... But, Mr. Jones, isn't that antithetical to the 
is it in 1017, the general timing rule, that you take this in the next year, not in the year? It is a different treatment of suspended losses. It is expressly a different treatment of suspended losses and how they're handled on the subchapter S return. These are rules peculiar to subchapter S's. Yes, the answer to your question is yes. It is a different treatment for suspended losses. It brings them into the year of the discharge. And then under 108, we know that, under, that, that the tax attribute reduction is to apply in, in the, at the corporate level if in the year think, of the discharge. If you think that the, the timing rule is changed here, it's surprising that you didn't make any suggestion of that in your brief. Well, we, I think that it's — I wouldn't call it a fallback argument, but I would call it not a, not a correct way to analyze the basic problem that we have in this case, which is that the courts have, have glossed over the question of whether this has ever been regarded as an item of income, whether and, — and in particular, whether Congress intended it to be treated as such. When the history of the statute says as clearly as it could that Congress accepted the 80-year-old position of the Treasury and the judicial insolvency exception, did not regard this as an item of income, said that it was to be applied to reduce tax attributes, and then in the words of, the, of the, both the House and Senate reports, has no further tax consequences. Well, let me see if I can get, get you to focus precisely on the, the point I'm trying to understand. You have just told us that in the Tenth Circuit brief, we will not have found this unusual approach to the timing question. We would not have found that in the government's argument. We certainly don't find it in our brief in this court. I'm just trying to determine whether the government at least considered it an alternate argument in, in the lower courts and for some reason abandoned it here. I think it, it — I wouldn't quite put it that way. I think that the right way to put it is the way I have put it, which is that we proper — we were presenting this case to you with complete integrity. We think this issue need not be reached in this case. Did you did you present it the same way in the Tenth Circuit? Actually, I believe in the Tenth Circuit we didn't address the issue. I believe the Tenth Circuit developed this analysis on its own. So if I look at the government's brief, I'll find that corroborated. I think that's correct. Did you address the issue you're now addressing? I'm in sorry, the Tenth Circuit. Justice Did Clinton. you address the issue you're presenting to us in the Tenth Circuit, other than in yes. footnote 14 of your brief? Although in the Tenth Circuit, we were defending the tax court's ruling, and the tax court reversed. Yeah, for whatever reason, this argument that you that you now say is so obvious on the face of the code, was this referred to in your argument to the Tenth Circuit, other than in, in a footnote, footnote 14 of your brief? Well, you're, you're expressing a, a close familiarity with that, and I don't remember footnote 14, well, but, but my — I didn't dig this out myself. Okay. It, it was stated in, in, in your opponent's uh, presentation. Is, is it inaccurate? It is. I have recently looked at our brief in the Tenth Circuit, and in my recollection of our brief in the Tenth Circuit was that we made the same point in, in — in, we made the same argument in the context that the tax court resolved the issue which is that first they talked about how it's all done at the corporate level. And then, having reached that conclusion, emphasized that there is no item of income and no tax-exempt income in connection with this item. But this does not constitute income. You, you yes. made that explicit argument. Yes. In fact, we noted that the t Treasury regulations have provided this for 70 years, long before 
61 was enacted long before 108, and that, the, and that the courts had adopted the judicial insolvency exception, had agreed with the commissioner that no income arises from the discharge of the debt of the insolvent. Are, are there past cases in which the IRS has argued that something is not income, or is this the first? Well, it's an uncomfortable <laughs> position for us. I mean, I, I would love to be able to resolve this case properly without addressing that subject. But we can't, because Congress itself made that the fulcrum of its legislative de determination. You know, it seems a little contradictory to say that under Section 108, the taxpayers here have to pay some sort of tax, whether you call it a deferred tax or just a price on something, that you say isn't income of any type. Well, and it's I, it just seems contradictory. And I'm concerned if we say it's not income, that there may be other items that are currently considered to fall within Section 61 as income that all of a sudden we find aren't. And I don't know how far that would take us if we... I don't know of any other. And, and, of course, I don't know if that provides you with any comfort. But let me answer the first part of the question you raised, which is, are there other situations where something that does not constitute income has an effect on basis or doesn't? And that, that the... the the closest example, and I don't believe it's quoted in the appendix, is 1368B. And 1368B is a provision that says that if a subchapter S corporation has no earnings and profits and makes a distribution to its shareholders, that won't be treated as income. And under 1367, it'll reduce their basis. Well, this is a similar determination. If something has happened here that puts the shareholders in a position where they Excuse might... Me, that, that means it won't be treated as income to the shareholders. I mean, yes. you're, 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 you're not talking about whether, whether in the abstract it's, uh, it's, it's an item of income. They, Here, here's they the, have to say that it's not treated as, as an item of income because otherwise it normally would be. Well, actually, if you look at the close words of the statute, it doesn't say that. I mean, Section 61 begins with the phrase, except as otherwise provided discharge of a debt is, is, an, is income. Section 108 says discharge of a debt of insolvent is not an item of income. And, and that recognizes the historical distinction that Justice, uh, uh, that this Court had talked about in Commissioner versus Tufts in, in Justice Blackmun's opinion that, that the whole theory of the discharge of indebtedness doctrine is that the discharge frees up the assets of the debtors and he could use them to May we go back to the formulation that Gross income does not include. Well, the, that same formulation is also used for tax-exempt yes. bond interest, right. for uh, life insurance proceeds, and even though it says does, the same exact words, does not gross and income does not include, we know that those do up the basis. Not as an item of income, though. They come in as tax-exempt income. 1366 raises the basis for items of income, including tax-exempt income. Tax-exempt income is something that really is income, and it's an accretion to wealth. It's the only example... But the words of the statute are the same. Gross income does not include. Right, but tax-exempt income is real income. It's something that you receive. It's an asset. It, it is an accretion to wealth within the concept and of income. And forgiveness of indebtedness? Is not. Incre the, the, the forgiveness of indebtedness for an insolvent, as Justice Blackman pointed out, in, in footnote 11 of Commissioner versus Tufts, doesn't free up any, any assets. Well, but that, that was the, uh, uh, addressed by, uh, uh, 
by your adversary. He said, well, suppose you have a corporation which is insolvent by a million dollars, and, and part of that is a $950,000 indebtedness. Uh, there's, there's, there's a world of difference. And it amazes me that the government says this isn't income. Or to put it more simply, if my bank told me, you know, forget about your mortgage, boy, I'd feel a lot richer. You, you're telling me that, that that is not an accretion of wealth? I, it's, what's it's unbelievable. My responsibility to this court is to tell you how Congress, what, what we understand Congress used these terms to mean. Congress could not have been more clear. They adopted a judicial insolvency exception that adopted a longstanding regulatory interpretation. It doesn't matter. This court doesn't have to resolve the broader question of whether under Commissioner versus Glenshaw Glass this might be thought to be an accretion of wealth. It doesn't matter. You don't have to resolve that question because what, what is before the court is how did Congress use right. it? Given terms. how it's before the court, what was your answer to Justice Ginsburg? I was having exactly the same problem. I accept that it's a loophole for arguments. Right. If it were a terrible loophole, this wouldn't be the first loophole that Congress wrote, and it won't be the last. And, and I hope maybe it would be the last. Marvelous. The, but the, 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 there are 31 separate, 29 separate subsections of this statute that use the words, gross income does not include. And I take it, in respect to every one of those, but one, you will say they are items of income. And obviously, one thing I would be reluctant to do is to take those same words, gross income does not include, and say that those are items of income in every instance but this one, or in every instance but three, or create a new spider web of rules as to when the words gross income does not include does mean it is nonetheless items of income but doesn't in other. That's the problem that I'm facing. And, and to d just say it's Congress's clear intent doesn't help me solve that problem. Well, but it should help you resolve, resolve that problem because what's at issue is what was Congress's intent when it used the phrase items of income. And are you saying it's always the same? It, those words, gross income does not include in those 29 subsections, whatever they're referring to is never an item of income? Or do you mean it sometimes is and sometimes uh, isn't? Okay, that, I think I, I'm focused on your problem. I think the answer to your question is probably that in all of those instances, it wouldn't be an item of income. Never? Well, what, for but, example, but, about a lessor's income? Uh, there's, there's a reference here to a payment by a lessor of a certain it, kind of rent, wouldn't. which I thought surely should increase basis. It wouldn't be income received in the year. And what, and what happens is you're supposed to reduce the basis and recognize, as this court said in Centennial Bank, recognize that deferred income in future years. And as that's recognized, then, then it becomes an item of income in that sense. But in the year that it's real, in the first year, it's not treated as, a, as an item of income for this purpose. But you don't... Then, it, then it's income when it hurts the taxpayer in later years. It's income if it... I, mean, I don't know what... It's in, if it's income, it increases the basis. And if it's not income, it doesn't. And if it's not income and doesn't increase the basis, then, it, then, it's, then, then any income effect would be recognized in subsequent periods. Could you answer one other question, which is... And it, but it's going to sound as if it's on your side, so you'll be tempted to agree. But don't agree, because you have okay. to push this argument, and I want to know why. It seemed to me that the, the strongest point was the words keeping it at the corporate level. 
because if you kept it at the corporate level, no problem that I could think of would be caused, and it would eliminate the loophole, and it seems consistent with the language. But you haven't pushed that argument, and therefore there must be some disaster in no, tax it, law lurking. We, we do. We, we put it as our second point. We don't abandon that argument. It's definitely addressed in our brief. But it, it's, it's sort of an intellectual fussiness that causes us to address the, the income issue first, and then the shareholder issue, I mean, the corporate level issue. And that, that is because D7 wasn't enacted, as, 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 Justice, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, until 1984. But in 1980, Congress already went ahead and said, this is not to be treated as an item of income. It's to be used to reduce attributes and is to have no further tax consequences. So we shouldn't have to look to 1984 legislation in D7 uh, to answer this question. Now, D7 is consistent with our answer, and therefore, and it is a sufficient answer. But it, it seems to me to be perfectly faithful to what Congress said they did and to what the text of these statutes permit uh, us to understand. We don't have to go to 84. We can go right to where, where Congress said. And, and I want to point out in this respect that it's solely on the 1980 legislation that, that Professors Bitker and Loken reviewed the history, reviewed the provisions, and agreed with us that the discharge of the debt of indebtedness of an insolvent party does not represent an item of income and is to be ignored after it's applied against the tax attributes. Now, what petitioner's position is, let's not ignore it. Let's get a tax benefit from it. We'll treat it, we'll pass it through as if it were income. We'll, we will get a, a basis adjustment that allows us to deduct suspended losses. And what they have done is they have used 108 to enhance their tax attributes when Section 108B makes it clear that the whole point of 108B is to reduce tax attributes. Well, but what do you think Congress did then in, in 84? I, I take it that the taxpayer is conceding that if the 82 law remained in place, a subchapter S shareholder would be just like a partner in a partnership and could not get this benefit. Well, that but there was a change in 108. And tell me, it seemed to me that what you were essentially arguing is that we should undo the change that Congress made in 108. And you're telling me, no, the change in 108 didn't do anything? or what? It didn't change the basic principles of 108. The, the amendment in, in 1984 simply said that, that the the tax attribute reduction will be applied at the corporate level for subchapter S corporations. This is in 108D7A. So if it applied it at the shareholder level, then they, then you have a solvent shareholder. If they applied it at the shareholder level, for solvent shareholders, there would be no — they would recognize the income and, and, and pay it on their own returns. It wouldn't have any consequences. Right. But what — what was the effect of saying take it at the corporate level so that the insolvent is the corp corporation? Congress said that they were doing that because they wanted all shareholders to be treated the same. That was the explanation that Congress gave. It, it, it well, didn't somebody point out to Congress or didn't Congress know that a subchapter S corporation is quite different from a subchapter C corporation? 
Well, there, this is a special rule, actually, that, is, is, that applies only for subchapter S. Is but one you of, just told me the rationale was that all corporations should be treated alike. Oh, no, no, that all, I'm oh, sorry, that all shareholders oh, of the subchapter S corporation should be treated the same. In other words, they didn't want to, Congress said they didn't want to have shareholder one to be treated differently than shareholder two, although, as you are aware, for partnerships, that, that kind of different treatment can result in the, in the... But Congress didn't think this had anything to do with the, the change in 108-D7, had anything to do with the issue here, uh, although because they had already resolved the issue in 1980 when they explained how these statutes were to work. And I want to point out, in 1993, when Congress amended uh, uh, Section 108 to extend its application to qualified real property indebtedness, Congress went through the operation of these same provisions and said the same thing. But Congress was explicit there in a way it isn't here. I don't know how Congress could have been more explicit in 1980. Congress said that there won't be any increase in basis. That's true. That was explicit in 90. Here we don't have anything that says there won't be any any increase in basis. Well, we have awfully good indication of that. We have Congress saying it's not income. It's only to be used to reduce tax attributes. It has no other tax consequences and is then to be disregarded. But you will concede that to say basis will not be increased is something uh, a lot clearer than what you're presenting to it's, us. It's, yes, it's perfectly clear, but to me it was So why didn't they make that same statement with respect to this, knowing that the courts were all over the lot? Oh, in 1980, the courts were not all over the lot. In 1980, no court had ever suggested that the discharge of the debt of an insolvent was income. What was the year of the real estate provision? Ninety-three. Ninety-three. Yes. Yes, so I'm asking about when they made that change in 93 and they said basis will not be increased, why didn't they just say, well, let's do the same thing uh, for subchapter S Oh, well, I'm sorry. They were talking about subchapter S corporations in 1993. They were, talk- they were talking about exactly the issue we have in this case. But I'm just simply asking you, why didn't they make those that same change to say, explicitly, basis will not be increased, since that would have cured The statute wasn't amended in any of its substantive characters in 93. They just added another provision to make it to, to the same statute. Yes, but couldn't they have said, now we're adding this provision and we're making this thing explicit to make the statute compatible, we ought to make that same provision elsewhere. They were talking about, when they said that basis is not adjusted, they were talking about the subchapter S corporation provisions involved in this case. So they were talking about previously enacted provisions of Section 108 in describing how they apply. There are certain words that are used. Basis is not increased by Yes. The- and why wasn't it made clear then basis is not increased? I- with respect to the subchapter S. That is exactly what the, they said at that time in 93. I'm sorry, there's a, we're, we're not communicating. No, we're not. We have a, a provision that says those words expressly. It's you're not a provision, it's just legislative history. You're asking, I thought it was in the statute no, itself. No, I'm sorry, now I understand. It was not in the, in the history statute itself of, in any case. It was in the history of the 93 Amendment that Congress, in going through how the statute operates, explained that for subchapter S corporations, this is not an item of income, it doesn't adjust basis. That's all I'm saying, is that I'm not saying 
that this is binding history. I'm just saying it is. Is there a provision of the Internal Revenue Code that says basis will not be increased? That was a change that was made in the statute, not legislative history. I'm not familiar with that, but it's just the contrary. The statute says only that basis will be adjusted if there's an item of income, and Congress said this isn't an item of income. I know that perhaps that's I, perhaps I'll look for it. Is that real estate? The, the, I, I'm sure you must be familiar with it. And I thought that in this, that statute itself, those words appear. I'm not familiar with that. The the contention that that if it's not an item of income, then it's tax exempt income, uh, is also fundamentally flawed for the same reason. It's not tax exempt income because it's not an accretion of wealth. It's not income in the first place. Tax-exempt income. Except that Section 61 of Title 26 says that income uh, includes income from discharge of indebtedness. I mean, that's it says except as other. It says except as otherwise provided. Yes. Income includes income from discharge. Yes. So and, that's and 108 the normal rule. Well, that's a contingent rule. It says except as otherwise provided. Income includes income from discharge. 108 says it doesn't include income from discharge of an insolvent. And that is the 80-year the history of the Internal Revenue Code. It also says that it, it doesn't include income from a lot of other things. I mean, as, I'm, I'm as sorry, Justice Breyer was, uh, uh, was pointing out earlier, there, there are a lot of other things as to which it says the same thing. It, and, and all it means is that although gross income would normally mean this for purposes of subchapter S, it will not mean that. But that doesn't mean it's, it's, it's in the abstract, not income. I don't have the argument you're making here. I don't have any objection to what you just said. I think it's perfectly correct. I think it's a proper concern. But our point is that what you're supposed to, what, what we have to resolve here is what did Congress mean when it said items of income in 1366, because that's what flows through. Congress said this is not an item of income. And when I say this, I mean the discharge of the debt of an insolvent. All of, my only point about the congruence of 61 and 108 is that they can't win on those provisions because all those provisions say is what we say. It's not income. And, and what the legislative history of the, of the provisions say is exactly what we is, – is why we're here today, which is that Congress has always said this isn't income, has never permitted it to have any tax consequences other than attribute reduction. And, and – and, and I go back again to Bitker and Loken. I mean, they're pretty objective, neutral uh, source on this, and they agree with us that this is not the way Congress used the term, and that it is not, to, and that after it's applied to reduce attributes, it's to be ignored. The reason <coughs> was—is this some article in, in a law review you're talking about? It, it's actually in their treatise. In a treatise. Federal income taxation. It's a pretty. Reliable guy. How, how have the Court of Appeals come out on this issue? The Court of Appeals have been sort of all over the map. If you're talking about the court in this case. No, I meant just the Court of Appeals. No, the Court of Appeals ruled for the government in this yes. case. Yes. Have other courts of appeals ruled against the government on this point? Yes. The, the Third Circuit in the Farley case ruled against the, the United States, saying that that the plain language of 108 makes this an item of income, and, and how they can I – don't, I don't understand their reasoning because the plain language 108 says it's not an item of income, and the clear history of the statute says it should never be treated as one, and instead it's to be ignored after you reduce basis. So, I mean, after you reduce tax attributes. So, In, in fact, no court of appeals has agreed with the government on this point, has it? 
Is there any court of appeals that has agreed with this argument? I, I don't think there's a court of appeals that has gone through these, these arguments that we have made the primary focus of our position in this court. Well, the answer is no. They haven't, uh, they haven't addressed them, Justice well, Scalia. Why didn't the government argue this in the other courts? I, again, I believe that our, what we were doing was we were forwarding the rationale, we were defending the rationale of the tax court. Which you now disagree with? No, well, we now, as, as I explained to Justice Breyer, we think that the proper way to reach this, to analyze this, is the way Congress did, to start with 108 in 1980, and then to point out that the amendment to D7 in 1984 was consistent with that result and promoted that conclusion. Now, what the tax court did was differently. They, they, they did, as they said, as Justice Breyer points out, that all of this should be done at the corporate level and nothing escapes to the shareholders because it's all handled at the corporate level. I think that's a correct conclusion. But I think one of the reasons it's a correct conclusion is because there is no item of income that can escape to the shareholders and add to their basis and give them this double tax benefit windfall. And, and I do want to point out that, that in each of these cases when when the basis adjustment is allowed, there is indeed a windfall there. Well, but that, that can't be controlling. I mean, there's no reason to simply distort the tax code to avoid a, a, a windfall in this particular case. I don't think it's controlling, but it's a presumption that Congress doesn't intend to do that. And so when you look at these statutes and you have the clear history and you have, if you have any uncertainty about the application of the plain text of these provisions, that uncertainty should be resolved in, to avoid creating the, the either denying the intention of Congress or creating the windfall benefit. Let's What's assume the that the insolvent corporation, I'm sorry, I, what's the presumption you refer to? The presumption is what this court said in Skelly Oil, that tax statutes should not be interpreted to provide the practical equivalent okay. of a double deduction, which is exactly what they've sought. Mr. Jones, could, could it not end up being a double deduction in, in, or a, a double tax in, in, in the other direction? Let's assume an insolvent uh, uh, Chapter S corporation that later recovers. All right. What? The, the, uh, the taxpayer would never have gotten the, uh, the increase of his, of his basis that arises from this uh, reduction of, of indebtedness uh, and therefore could not, uh, could not offset against, uh, against any future gains that he gets from the corporation. Is, is that fair? I think that, that what you're pointing out is exactly the opposite of how Congress looked at this situation. What Congress said was that they're getting this immediate benefit of not having this treated as income in the year that, that the debt is discharged and recognizing that they might benefit from that in future periods if they have income from other sources. Congress said, I want to reduce the tax attributes, the favorable tax attributes like suspended losses. Thank make... you, Mr. Jones. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Hallett, you have two-plus minutes remaining. Uh, with respect to the Bicker and Eustace Treatise, what it actually says is that uh, uh, COD income of an insolvent debtor is not gross income, and it's cited in the brief. Not one of the, uh, the authorities cited by the, the government uh, say that, that, that it's not realized. They say it's excluded from gross income. Uh, with respect, if the commissioner were right that because an item is excluded from gross income, it's not income, then none of the items excluded from gross income, life insurance proceeds, interest on municipal bonds, None of those would increase basis because they're not income and they couldn't be an item of income. This double tax benefit, uh, there is no tax benefit at all without a basis increase. The item just as well have been taxable. 
If it was taxable, the income would flow down to the shareholder, his basis uh, would go up, uh, and he'd be able to take his loss against the, the income. He'd end up with zero basis and zero income, just the same position where the commissioner urges he should end up here. Finally, the Tenth Circuit did not develop the timing rule on its own. That rule is word for word what was urged upon it by the Justice Department in that case. This case has been a constant moving target. The only time the commissioner argued the no realization was the first time this case was decided before then Chief Judge Cohen and tax court. She rejected it. It was never raised again until it was raised in the petition for certiorari in, in this brief. I submit, Your Honor, a plea on behalf of tax practitioners in this country. They should be able to read the code is written. They shouldn't have to speculate as to whether or not a result that's called for on the plain language of the statute is too good to be true or is a windfall. The tax laws are too complicated to have to get into that kind of speculation. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hallett. The case is submitted.